You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. My guest today is William Costello. William is a student of psychology at Brunel University and a writer, and I have invited him on the podcast to talk about his work on incels. Welcome, William. Hi, Iona. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So perhaps you could start by telling us how you first became interested in this specific topic. So um, my interest in incels uh, came about because of uh, a conference I attended about men's issues called Messages for Men in 2018. And at that conference, it was the first time I had ever heard a uh, someone who describes themselves as an incel, speak in real life. And Richard, uh, who was obviously overcoming serious crippling anxiety to address the audience, uh, spoke about his difficulty in receiving uh, contradictory advice and what he would consider useless advice around dating. Um, He talked about the difficulty of being told to just lift bro, which was a common piece of kind of magic bullet style advice given to incels uh, that if they would just lift weights and build themselves up in bodybuilding, that that would solve all of their problems. And uh, the other bits of advice that he's been given were uh, uh, just be yourself, which in my opinion is a little bit of kind of gaslighting to incels to kind of explain that they're a problem is either that they're being inauthentic or, you know, that there is no problem at all. Uh, the other piece of advice is that it's not all about looks. And of course, this is true that there are other aspects that come into play. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, there is a, a kind of a, I'm always given examples of uh, anecdotes of somebody who has an amazing personality that compensates for uh, for their looks. and. Everyone has these examples, but for personality to come into play, um, you need to already have a, a minimum standard of looks. The, mm. the, the the weightlifting advice is particularly seems insufficient and cruel because a lot of incels uh, self-report to have um, physical and or mental disabilities. Uh, so that's serious barrier on that front. And... Um, yeah, so uh, that that seems cr- kind of cruelly insufficient. Um, the other piece of advice is uh, to j- just be yourself, and then also that there's someone out there for everyone, which oddly for me uh, seems a little bit almost sexist because it kind of implies if you just wait and you just keep trying, uh, th- there'll be someone with low enough standards for you, which it, you know is uh, it seems cruel uh, for the women out there also. And uh, it just, it just, I felt a lot of sympathy for this, uh, for, for Richard, um, because, you know, dating 
is tough and cruel at the best of times. Uh, so it's it's no wonder that uh, Richard and incels and many like that might kind of retreat from the the cruelty of a, a dating world that they see that rejects them, that they see as ritualistically humiliating, exhausting, and expensive. Um, and they increasingly are going to retreat into virtual worlds. And it got me thinking of kind of, can we really blame them, you know, and what, what do we get out of it as a society that we want them to keep trying and um, that we, you know, we don't accept that they don't want to take part in the mating market anymore. So what is it that makes somebody identify as an incel? So when I was reading, I was reading James um, Blood. What is his name? Bloodworth. Bloodworth. Yes, I'm never sure what kind of blood thing it is. Um, I was reading James Bloodworth's uh, letter wiki exchange with Louise Perry. Mm -hmm. Um, He said that an incel was uh, defined as any man who had been single and had not had sex in the past six months, which seems to me to be an extraordinarily short time Mm -hmm. in which to give yourself some kind of a label. I mean, I haven't had sex for two years, and I don't consider myself an incel or femcel or anything else. Um, I just think it's kind of, it's just normal to sometimes not be in a relationship for a while. That That's right. And yeah, the, it's a very important question. And I think you're right that identity plays a huge part in this because a time metric, well, first of all, it, it's objectively impossible to prove that somebody can't gain access to sex or relationships. That's, you know, that, that's not objectively provable. Um, so on one level, you must embrace the identity uh, of the, the kind of incel label. And there is a difference between somebody who embraces the identity of the incel um, label and identity uh, than someone who's just perhaps, like you say, going through a dry spell. There's a difference between a dry spell and an incel, right? So a time metric doesn't seem right to put on it either. And I think perhaps COVID might have made an incel out of many people if, if that's the case. And the identity element is also important because, um, you know, uh, the, the incels get a lot out of that identity element. And when you trade that against the cruelty of the dating market, it, it seems like a, a kind of a seductive identity to embrace. But if we dis- define an incel as someone who cannot gain access to sex for a sustained period and forms an identity around this, and if we go by the, this definition and we acknowledge that the number of men who have not had sex within the last year has increased threefold in the last decade, um, you know, that's kind of uh, gives us an idea of the significance of the group that we're talking about. Now, a significant minority of incels derive a sense of fraternity and community, uh, with online spitting, misogynistic vitriol, and uh, then a rare minority or rare individual cases of incels have actually lashed out at society in horrific acts of violent rage. Um, now, media and cultural depiction tends to kind of fixate on those latter two groups, the the most extreme voices, um, and they kind of depict all incels as potentially dangerous or all misogynistic. Um, I'm reminded about the, the moral panic around the Joker movie uh, that was going to lead to a lot of incel violence uh, everywhere, um, according to the media, but it just didn't really manifest despite the media kind of salivating at the prospect. 
Right. Yes. I mean, I mean, we already know, we all know it's been proven so many times that watching violent media does not make people violent. That, that's that right. People are generally, uh, um, maybe somebody who is on the very verge might, might be tipped over, but they could have been tipped over by anything. But most people have a healthy ability to, um, to distinguish fiction from reality. And to enjoy imaginative excursions in make believe, um, and ex explore even parts of themselves, darker or more sinister parts of themselves, um, through vicariously through fiction, um, without needing to live out any of those things. I mean, I I watch so many murder mysteries. in this house. We watch so many murder mysteries. And, you know, in a way, they're more practical than something like the Joker, because you learn what uh, you learn what poisons you could use and things. <laughs> you know, you learn some practical <laughs> tips for how to kill people. And am, am I afraid that one of one of us is one of my housemates is going to kill the others? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it's so it's so absurd. So the incel, their online kind of behavior or what they would call shit posting, it doesn't really tack on to real world outcomes uh, for the most part. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a rich lexicon of in-group, out-group uh, kind of language and talking uh, to each other um, in a derogatory way about women and, and men online. Uh, in, in many ways, that kind of online community, like um, like pornography and actually a lot of virtual worlds, it might actually be serving as a pacifying effect on what would otherwise be a very destabilizing portion of society. Um, I, w I want to come back to pornography, but mm. um, you're making it sound like a very positive community thing, like a kind of self-help group or something. And I am a bit skeptical of that, um, not just because of the kind of misogynistic vitriol which some people are indulging in on those 4chan and Parler and um, sites like that, but um, also it's just, um, it seems to be feeding into this very popular notion nowadays as kind of grievance or victimhood culture. Mm -hmm. Um, which um, I I talked about the book The Rise of Victimhood Culture in an earlier episode uh, of this podcast. I interviewed the authors, and it does seem to me that I really um, I don't feel it's helpful to base your identity on a sense of grievance and victimhood. So it's one thing to Self-help, of course, is a self-help group. So, of course, can be very useful for talking through things to other people who've been through the same stuff, who understand. But the idea of those groups is to heal from your trauma, mm -hmm. whereas this seems like wallowing. Yes, I think you're actually on to something very important that I think I would agree with you on. 
so my goal uh, for foreign sales would be to encourage them to ascend or uh, to kind of come to, to, to grow out of their uh, wallowing in this victimhood mentality. Um, but I can recognize what a seductive identity it is because victimhood culture is very seductive, especially now and especially with the kind of fraternity and community they would get online and indeed the common enemy uh, and real or perceived grievance that they get with that incel identity. I can see how it's kind of seductive. Now, uh, to kind of tack on to what you said, it is also very fatalistic and kind of self-defeating because a lot of the incel groups, they kind of don't want to see anyone else, uh, you know, get a date or to, to find love because that would mean them leaving the incel identity or leaving the group and even some of the groups will actually uh, kick you out if you if you're going on a date so you know it's well, kind of it's fatalistic in that regard so it, yeah i certainly uh, i would advocate the self-development and ascending kind of route um because that stuff that you would need to do to self-develop would be good for a person's psyche anyway um but uh, interestingly any form of self-development that uh, in explicitly uh, attaches the goal of um, attracting women that kind of gets flagged up as and framed as misogynistic and you know let, let's face it attracting women is a pretty big motivator for a lot of men to develop themselves so i, I don't see why it's uh, inherently misogynistic I, i'm reminded of ralph leonard's article uh, about uh, barack obama's autobiography yes. <laughs> barack obama got in trouble because he said in his autobiography that he uh, was reading certain intellectual ideas with the explicit goal of attracting a variety of different women. Now, he said it didn't really work, um, but he got slammed for this. And, you know, I mean, mo attracting women has been a big motivator for a lot of men. But I thought it was funny. I tried to, I tweeted out that if Barack Obama can ascend from his inceldom in college, Surely there's hope for any incels out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Obama was friend-zoned right. <laughs> when, when he tried to seduce people by reading uh, Marx and Althusser. Yeah. Um, there's just one more thing, Iona, if I could, while I have it in my mind. It's hmm. something very important. And uh, on the back of my article about incels, um, a, a feminist academic in America reached out to me and we're called Sarah, Dr. Sarah Daly and she's writing a book about incels and we're going to have a, a, a public formal letter exchange very soon on the topic and she's been great to discuss uh, ideas with and something she told me that really resonated with me was that with everybody just focusing on the derogatory uh, statements made about women and the misogynistic um uh, Reddit forums in the incelosphere, what gets lost is the focus on the loneliness uh, the depression and the suicidality. Um, for example, in the incel community, they're actually currently kind of reeling from what appears to be one of the most prominent kind of incels online. Uh, he, was, he, he went by the Twitter account Frail, Pale, Stale, Male, and uh, he had always kind of messaged a lot of other incels and people in the community uh, saying that he didn't want to live past 30. Now, it was his 30th birthday last month, and nobody has heard from him in a couple of weeks. And a lot of um, online uh, figures in the incel sphere 
are speculating that he's in most likelihood has passed away and has probably taken his life. So, you know, that kind of, that doesn't get reckoned with as much when we focus on just online shitposting instead. You know, it was sad he, he actually posted one of his most recent tweets. Uh, and I, I, I can't say for certain what has happened. And I, part of me still hopes he might resurface and say, you know, here, here I am and nothing's happened to me. But one of his most recent tweets before he's vanished was a picture of a bullet that said, this would look really good on the inside of my skull. So, you know, that kind of really shakes me up. And, you know, sometimes we're tempted to kind of trivialize the topic of incels. But if there's something like that, or indeed the, um, you know, the violent acts of violent rage, both are worth taking more seriously and kind of talking about with a bit more sensitivity than I think we have been doing as a society. Yeah, you talked about um, an empathy gap and um, your your belief. I know that this is something that uh, an um, an idea that a number of psychologists agree with that we are more sensitive to more sympathetic to female suffering than to male suffering i'm not sure that's entirely true but what i have noticed uh since last week since i've been um uh since i've been preparing for this podcast i um try to keep track of how often my housemates so i live with four men how often my housemates talk about male suffering versus female suffering. Mm -hmm. And none of my housemates are, of course, at all callous or unsympathetic to anybody who's suffering. But I just mean in general conversation, things that come up, general, uh, general talk about problems that women face versus problems that men face. Mm. And I would say that there's at least a three-to-one emphasis on women's problems. Um, not that they wouldn't be entirely sympathetic to any individual man. I'm I'm talking about in kind of general conversation and what's in, generally in their minds. Um, and all my housemates are men, <laughs> so um, I think also that I also noticed this when I was doing research on circumcision. Mm. There was an awful lot of of very callous dismissal um, of people's genuine problems and trauma um and it, it it really was quite extraordinary and i found it impossible to get people to even feel that the most minor forms of fgm like uh simply uh which of course i'm i'm completely opposed to but uh forms like um putting a pinprick in the uh, mm. hood of the clit um, were not even then 100 times worse than circumcision. Um, and it, it was sort of extraordinary. Um, there was a, a huge gap in sympathy. So I think that does exist sometimes, but I want to push back a little bit um, against some things that you said about this in relation to uh, sexual success. Mm. Because you said that um, men who are uh, men who are not sexually desirable, who are not sexually successful, or not successful at finding um, a relationship, are treated with scorn. Often treated with scorn, which I agree with, and I think 
it's shallow and cruel to be treating anybody with scorn for those for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that that is also true of that's also often true of women. The cat lady is a stereotype mm. um, that's often sort of brought up, and women are often also told that we just need to stop stuffing. Uh, I, I mean, a remark that I've had more than once is "stop stuffing your face with chocolate all day, and you will have a boyfriend." Oh my goodness! Um, so, because I'm overweight, I'm not obese, but I'm in medically overweight category. I'm a little bit. Of a zaftig, <laughs> a little bit zaftig in my figure, um, but I have noticed a difference in the kinds of people that are saying this, and I think in a way it parallels um, it parallels contrast between anti-brown, anti-black racism, and anti-white racism. That both things are terrible, and both things are happening. And um, in the case of the racism, I think. Um, there's more racism against darker-skinned people than vice versa. Uh, but nevertheless, very respectable people who would never dream of shouting racist abuse at, at a black guy will, will shout racist abuse at white people or will kind of share these tweets or articles or uh, online about how much they hate white people and how awful white people are. Right. And it's a bit similar. So the kinds of guys who are telling me I'm fat, ugly, and old, and I'm gonna I'm a cat lady, etc. Um, those are trolls. Mm. And we all recognize them as being trolls. Yeah. Whereas people who are usually empathetic, polite, well spoken, kind. I notice those kinds of people being very casually nasty about men who they consider to be unattractive or unsuccessful, you know, insulting men's looks, insulting short men for their height, um, things like that. So I feel as though that's more socially acceptable than the other thing, but they're both common. Um. Yes, so I agree, and certainly uh, the kind of misandry uh, might be seen as almost progressive and celebrated in online stuff. For example, you know, we are up in arms about the online misogynistic shitposting of incels, but hashtag kill all men and men are trash is kind of just seen as a progressive uh, chant. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons what it tells us about or um, interesting aspects it tells us about ourselves as society, the way we kind of view incels with scorn. But before I talk about that, I just want to pick up on what you said about the it goes both ways kind of element. Um, I think most incels would argue that there's no real uh, femme cell, that they don't acknowledge that there are true femme cells. And uh, what I would point to there is... Um, it's kind of like the cliche is that uh, women have tough choices and a tough time getting the sex or love that they want, uh, whereas incels have no choices and they can't get any sex or love at all. Um, And they would, uh, you know, say that, uh, you know, even if you you take yourself as an example, Iona, you know, you could have sex uh, or some love, maybe not the sex or love that you want, but you could get... uh, something quite easily. Would you agree? 
Probably, yes. Yes, but yeah, so it's a, a very different situation for a, a male incel who uh, will have to make most of the romantic advances also, which is no easy um, kind of task for a socially insecure and potentially perhaps autistic and socially anxious incel. He'll have to make those romantic advances, get rejected, pick himself up again and keep going. So it's kind of, it's a little bit of a different beast. It's kind of women have tough choices and incels have no choices. Um, but if we could just get get back to the idea you were talking mm-hmm. about, this kind of what it tells us about society, the way we view incels. Uh, yeah, in, in response to my article, I had a lot of people who I would usually describe as the kind of kinder, gentler politics type people suddenly turn into Ayn Rand philosophers and talk about <laughs> how, uh, no, you know, nobody helps anyone in that area. And, you know, with, within, with groups, uh, we usually rail against the idea of a, a group being represented by the most extreme voices in their community. Uh, for example, with Muslims, you know, the harmful stereotype of Muslims as terrorists. But when this happens for incels, we're reluctant to kind of rail against that. We are very readily, uh, we readily kind of use the most extreme voices uh, to represent them. And we usually uh, kind of try to prop up or at least have sympathy for the most uh, disenfranchised groups in society, particularly around, um, you know, relationships. You know, I think... um, uh, getting away from the focus on sex and focusing on the loneliness and lack of relationships might be a little bit helpful in helping us create a bit more empathy. But yeah, we just don't seem to show any of the same uh, empathy or sympathy for incels. And it seems that people want to kind of feel better and more moral about themselves by highlighting a deficiency in someone else. You, you see this a lot with kind of cancel culture and, you know, the ones who are really ready to take someone down for the slightest mistake. And also there's something to be said that the idea of male identity is kind of wrapped up in this idea of agency and competency and the incel kind of identity that's formed around the admission of incompetence in that arena is kind of jarring to us and we find it almost kind of repugnant. I think uh, in my article, I quote both James uh, and Louise Perry, James Bloodworth and Louise Perry from their dialogue. And I think both of their quotes uh, actually really sum it up for how we kind of, uh, as men and women in society, view incels differently. So James says that we still view men who don't have sex as failures in some way. And for men, calling someone an incel implies something positive about themselves, a certain sexual abundance about one's own uh, existence. And for mm-hmm. women, it's begun, the, the term incel has begun to kind of function as a put down and ruthlessly dismisses unworthy suitors while simultaneously expelling them from the community of the good as misogynistic and creepy. And Louise, uh, she has. Uh, very interesting comments on the dating market more broadly. She says, the dating market is highly competitive, hierarchical, and often cruel. The fact is uncomfortable for anyone who values egalitarianism, so a more appealing, albeit dishonest, option is to blame incels for their plight by suggesting that their unpleasant personalities must be the problem. And, you know, I hear it all the time uh, with saying, oh, it's not all about looks, you know. That expects an incel 
who doesn't have the looks. And I know you've had uh, Francesca Minerva on to talk about lookism. Mm, yeah. So that, that's quite formidable, the looks. Uh, it, it is uh, a potent aspect of this. But to say that it's not all about looks kind of implies that an incel can just summon an amazing personality uh, really quickly and really easily. And, you know, that's not easy for anyone. And your personality might come across as a lot better uh, when you're good looking in the first place. So, you know, it, the, it, the incels will often say that the same behavior when it's done by someone attractive, an attractive man, which they would call a chad, uh, that it, it's a different standard um, than when, it, you know, a, a proposition from an incel. It could be the exact same um, approach, but it will be seen as creepy because of uh, their status in life. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that there is an inevitable. Um, I mean, there is an inevitability to that. It is unfair, and I'm not saying that in a callous way. But attraction cannot be forced, and so there are winners and losers um, on the dating on the dating market. Mm-hmm. And there is no easy way of solving that uh, because we can't we can't obviously force people to date people they don't want to date. And I know you've never ever suggested that we should. And on the other hand, we do want as many people as possible to be happy. And it's mm-hmm. very difficult to it's it's very difficult to to maximize. Um, human happiness in this regard. And I think part of the reason why I think the encelosphere is um, a a toxic place um, for those, uh, that it's the wrong approach to define yourself as an incel. I'm not saying that to blame them. I'm, I'm saying that I think this is unhelpful because we, we have to face the fact that some people will be, will remain single. Yeah, and you need to be able to be happy as a single person, because otherwise you are placing all of your hopes for happiness in something which you have very little control over, which is how other people respond to you and how they feel about you. And um, you can, I think, uh, have a lot of influence on how people respond to you as a person, as a friend, etc. But mm-hmm. the amount of influence you can have on whether or not they find you sexually attractive is much more limited. Um, yes. Much more limited. And um, that's just a very, very sad and difficult thing to deal with. But mm. there's no way, there's no real way around it. Um, so I think, yeah, but, uh, I agree. But there's kind of what's happening is there are aspects of modernity that are maybe in tension with uh, our evolutionary psychology that's maybe exacerbating the incel problem. Um, and there are perhaps men who ordinarily for the last uh, couple of generations wouldn't have found themselves uh, in with this plight that are suddenly finding themselves not being selected for. And in terms of what that does to someone's psyche from an evolutionary perspective, uh, to kind of reckon with the fact that you're an evolutionary dead end is is quite something for a man to reckon with. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, for example, it, 
someone on Tinder could receive uh, countless rejections in one hour, whereas in their mind, our kind of our, our modern skulls still house Stone Age minds, is is the quote about our evolutionary psychology. Uh, the sexual rejection or romantic rejection in our ancestral environment could have meant ostracization and you know, almost death. So, you know, to get that compounded over and over again with rejection after rejection after rejection in the modern world is is quite something. Mm. There's a great E.O. Wilson quote about the mismatch between our ancestral environment and the modern world. He says, the real problem of humanity is the following, that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And I think there's been a lot of kind of unintended consequences of certain aspects of modernity that on the surface seem like intuitive net positives, such as the advent of online dating, who, which I initially was a, a big cheerleader for, and still am in some ways, but I think it requires uh, looking at in, with a little bit of a more scrutiny. Didn't you, didn't you meet your wife on, on, online, on an online dating site? You're going to get me in trouble now because she's not my wife yet, but uh, I certainly I did. I met my girlfriend online, yes. <laughs> Oops. Um, Which is why I was an initial uh, a big cheerleader of it. Well, Lizzie, if you're listening, I, you're definitely wife material. So I don't know what this man is playing at. <laughs> I'm taking my time. <laughs> or maybe it's her who doesn't doesn't want it. Uh, perhaps, yeah, you know. Well, maybe I'm waiting for a leap year and maybe she'll ask me. <laughs> okay, well, moving swiftly on, having just destroyed yeah. your relationship, uh, <laughs> I made you into an incel, which is appropriate. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> because now your professional and personal life can be more harmoniously. I'm doing the research. So, yeah, so we, we were talking about the, <laughs> the, the kind of aspects of modernity that are maybe exacerbating the problem. And we mentioned online dating. And uh, another one is uh, women's liberation into the workplace and uh, succeeding in education at a really high rate. And the final one then that I would mention is the erosion of what was called socially enforced monogamy. Because to be honest, uh, as humans, we generally, I mean, over 80%, I believe, of human societies have been polygynous, which means that uh, a minority of high-status men at the top of the kind of uh, social hierarchy or the dominance hierarchy in that society will kind of monopolize uh, the, the women in that, in that group. And, you know, so socially enforced monogamy has kind of kept that at bay uh, and kind of mitigated against the incel problem. Um, for many, many years. Now that's being stripped away now because it might be an uncomfortable truth for us to acknowledge, but it may be the case that for the, a, a number of generations, many women were settling for men that they don't really want out of economic necessity or out of real social pressure uh, to kind of find a man by the time you're 30 or something like that. Um, you know, and it's interesting, uh, there's something what I call Tindernomics, uh, about Tinder, a study of Tinder found that the bottom 80% of men in terms of attractiveness are competing for the bottom 22% of women and the top 78% of women are competing for the top 20% of men. So crudely put, the modern dating economy closer resembles polygyny with the most high status men having the monopoly. 
um, the majority of men are not being considered. And, you know, this is, uh, that's pretty new in terms of uh, what we've known about society for the last number of years. I think just returning to the online dating thing, mm. um, you made a good point, which is online dating gives you more opportunities, but those are opportunities are always also opportunities for rejection. Um, yes. I mean, I think that's true for um, women who are on the online dating scene too, because if somebody doesn't reply to your message, that's also rejection. Um, mm. Or if someone ghosts you on the date, stands you up, etc. That all, all of those are also forms of rejection. Um, mm -hmm. But another thing um, about, I mean, it's worse, of course, if nobody ever shows any interest. Mm -hmm. I think, I think you're right. That is worse. And the other thing about the online dating world is that it's um, inevitably very. Uh, looks driven. And I think for women in particular, women in particular often find that, are, often find themselves attracted to men who are less good looking once they get to know them. That's that, a very good point. Yeah. Um, that if you meet somebody in real life and you get to know them slowly, organically, um, then you begin to find them then you often begin to find them attractive. They grow on you. Their looks grow on you. Um, Indeed. Not always, of course. One should not rely upon this, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but it clearly it can happen. Whereas if you're on if if you're on Bumble, you're just mm. presented with a gallery of of faces, mm -hmm. and if you don't like, if your instant response to seeing the person's face photo is that you don't find them attractive, you just swipe left, and that is the end of them. So it's um, it's inevitably much more looks based, and it's also um, also you can of course filter. So for example, you can filter men by height. I know, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean the example I always use. It, so yeah, what you're talking about is that it basically strips away the dynamism of sexual attraction that's usually at play. For the example I always use is that a nice accent in real life, a nice Irish accent, might compensate for being short, right? <laughs> but that doesn't get a chance to happen when it's all reduced to the online stuff. And even uh, metrics that women in real life might claim might say that they don't really care about will matter a lot more online for example you are significantly more likely to have success in online dating with a master's level qualification compared to a bachelor's degree now i don't think that would matter that much uh, to to women in real life i don't think uh, it would much. matter at all Right, you'd think not, and it, it certainly wouldn't matter to men. And that, it's interesting how status might actually even work against a woman. For example, I have a female friend who once dumped a guy who was otherwise perfect because he happened to be a barista. And when she found out he was a barista, she thought this wasn't an ambitious enough career. I just can't imagine that happening in reverse. Uh, which is interesting. The the old cliche is that men treat women like sex objects and women treat men like success objects. So, so that's just a, an interesting observation there. Mm. I mean, there is certainly 
hypergamy certainly is a thing. Um, but I, I don't want to kind of, I don't want to stress that too much because then we can mm. get very quickly into this thing of, well, women just need to lower their standards and be less choosy. And yeah, I, I never, I never advocate that because no. you know women make really um, far better, amazing choices than men because of the greater parental investment. They have a lot more to lose by choosing the wrong man. So you know, no, no one should be encouraged to lower their standards. And you know, women make choices that are really good and balanced for their life. And and why shouldn't they? You know, but. Uh, but this uh, kind of the interaction between online dating and stuff like that isn't really good news for women either because it means by their own uh, uh, romantic standards, there are less men to pick from. And also those men are not settling down. They're kind of staying single and playing the field, uh, which kind of means that, you know, women are not happy about that either. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that I... Um, that always puzzles me. So clearly women are more choosy than men, sexually mm -hmm. more choosy, and I think possibly romantically more choosy. I'm not I'm not as convinced about that, but certainly sexually more choosy. Mm -hmm. um, and yet women are the ones who make a huge effort with their appearance. Um, I don't understand why uh, many men complain that they find it difficult to find girlfriends or they get rejected very often. And those same men also don't shave properly and get dressed in the dark. Right. Uh, I'm I'm I mean, I think that I do think that women uh, often focus way too much on appearance. I have several very intelligent, very interesting very vibrant female friends who with whom when we get together we probably spend more than half the time talking about appearance related things like mm. diets and exercise but not for health for you know reshaping the body yeah. makeup and um you know so much of our conversation is either about appearance improving our appearance or about seeking reassurance, you know, voicing our own insecurities and seeking reassurance. And I do, um, I do think that we could approach much more closely to the male thing, uh, which mm -hmm. is, did I put on deodorant or not today? Oh, who cares? And, and I'm just going to wear my drum-like beer belly with pride. <laughs> Um, uh, because I I do feel that it takes up an awful lot of mental energy for many women, and it's shallow and restrictive, and um, I I really dislike mm. that culture, and it's very pervasive. Yeah, but it does. I I do always wonder, given that you know that women are more choosy, why is it that? men make so little effort. I mean, compare gay men and straight men. Every woman would like straight men to dress like gay men and kind of do grooming like gay men. So mm -hmm. why don't they? Especially given that I, I would, if I were a straight man, I definitely would, especially given that other straight men don't. Interesting. So, I mean, I'd push back a little bit 
because um, I heard oh, I heard a counselor talking about uh, men on a podcast recently, and he said a lot of women come into his counseling practice complaining about men and say, oh, men are so bad in all these different arenas. But the one thing uh, he has never heard from a woman is, I wish my husband or I wish my man was more like a woman. So it's kind of, I don't know, but I would kind of agree with you that uh, dressing well and grooming would have a huge impact. It can take someone from zero to a hundred very fast and it's worth doing anyway. But I suppose my article was kind of trying to find the sweet spot around what can be mitigated against for uh, for an incel or uh, mm-hmm. and what, what yeah. can be kind of overcome. And that's worth finding out. Um, and what parts are just kind of immutable and uh, can't be kind of overcome. And, you know, the, the world of dating is perhaps a lot more superficial than than we acknowledge, uh, you know. But uh, l- like you said, it, you know, it's worth it's worth a try for sure. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly something to think about. And I always advocate the, the self-development route. And even in my article about incels in the kind of, better advice section that I probably would want to build on a little bit more in a part two of my article. I did link to a Twitter account for men's style that I think is really helpful and really beneficial because it's certainly fashion and uh, presenting yourself very well is a, a, a way in which you can kind of really improve your chances a lot. But a lot of incels would just throw their arms up in the air if they hear me saying that because they would say, no, it's over. That won't make any difference. And, you know, they, they kind of turn fatalistic about it. Yeah. Yeah. I did come across a sad piece of information just to, again, on the online stuff as well. It's kind of similar to this about the appearance stuff. Um, that Tinder and I suppose the other online apps as well are beginning to use uh, like a social credit type, Chinese social credit type system that determines whether a profile is even seen or not in the first place. So the more you're swiped left or swipe, swiped positively on, the more you'll be seen. But if you're not being swiped positively on at all, suddenly you're in the, the doldrums and, you know, you're not being even shown. And so it's a nosedive to the bottom. Oh, God, you know, that's horrible. That's, right, so, so, that's so cruel. You, the the empty void of the swiping room, you know, that's not actually you because of course you you don't see the rejections happen. Mm-hmm. So you know the the app might not just just might not show you to anyone because it's not in their interests to keep showing someone negative profiles that they keep swiping negatively on. Right, right. Yeah, I so I want to return to the topic of um, pornography for a moment. Mm. Um, I recently read um, Di- our, our mutual friend, Diana Fleischman's mm. article, which is called Uncanny Vulvas, absolutely wonderful yeah. title. I love that title. Which is, a, is about sex robots. And I guess we could also think of this in a more extended uh, form as being about virtual reality, porn, etc. And Diana's thesis, or one of her theses in this article is that having sex with a robot even though it clearly on a on a conscious level you know it's not the same thing it might be able subconsciously to signal to you that you are having some sexual success 
Mm-hmm. And therefore, some part, and that may be also what's happening in porn. When you are watching, uh, if you're watching porn and, um, and ejaculating to the, po- to the porn that you're watching, even though you know this is, this is the kind of theory, I think James Bloodworth has also put forward the, this theory, um, even though you consciously know that it's not real, some part of your um, more basic evolutionary uh, machinery mm. says to you, you saw a woman, you ejaculated, therefore you had sex, quote unquote, mm. and that makes you feel more fulfilled. Do you um, do you think that's true, or do you uh, because I think that social media suggests that the effects of social media suggests the opposite that um, we would think that social media might, for example, being online virtually might satiate our hunger for human contact, but it feels to me much more like the kind of aspartame of human sociality, and so it's it's it can feel leave you feeling more empty, lonely, and frustrated. Yeah. Uh, so well, I think what Diana is getting at there is the kind of, uh, as she mentions, the fake fitness evolutionary yes, cues. That's, that's that, yes, that's yeah, exactly so, the word. Thank you. So if, if you receive those cues from the environment, uh, you know, the, the visual stimulation of uh, sex on the screen followed by your ejaculation, in your mind, your evolutionary mind is telling you you're doing a great job, keep doing what you're doing. Um, so that's it's very interesting to think about. I I tend to think that it, yeah, pornography and online stuff tends to be more of like a, a pacifying effect that it kind of keeps uh, you know reduces sexual violence and things like that because it keeps people at home more often. Um, I think you know when you make it a contest between the harshness of a real the real world dating environment that yields very little success for a lot of incels and retreating into an online virtual world of, uh, you know, it, what's coming in the future, even virtual reality pornography, which I think that will probably come faster than any sex robots, the hardware, the software will get there faster than the hardware, in my opinion. But if you, you know, there's something else deeper going on for the incels as well as just wanting a sexual kind of, um, cue that they're evolutionarily viable and it's it's more about more than just the sex in my opinion because if you consider the rise and the popularity of sites like OnlyFans which is popular despite any amount of free hardcore pornography being available on the internet uh, I feel that incels crave the intimacy, connection and recognition and communication back, the kind of feedback that they might be to mitigate against their loneliness um, you know, and only, however, you know, only fans, it, it, it's merely a simulacrum of intimacy and it's ultimately kind of hollow. And I know a lot of, um, a lot of incels kind of rail against it as being somewhat exploitative. Um, but it does speak to the fact that it's about more than sex for, for the incels. It's about, uh, kind of recognition. And um, yes, maybe it's better than nothing also. Um, if the, op- if, you know, you're, Alternative is nothing. Certainly, yeah. And so, but the alternative is actually worse than nothing because the alternative is the humiliation and anxiety of having to participate in the mating market 
and getting the anxiety that comes with that. So it's, you know, you can, it's a seductive kind of retreat Mm. that I can see. I was, um, I read Ayala. So there's Mm. this, um, her Ayala. Well, of course, you know her. Um, There is this uh, account on Twitter called at Ayala Girl, and she is, um, I believe she's one of the top earners or perhaps the, the top earner on the OnlyFans site. And uh, she uh, wrote an article detailing um, how her OnlyFans works. And obviously her subscription rates are high. It's expensive. And mm-hmm. what she does is um, every day she sits naked in front of the camera. I, she said either topless or naked and um, talks about politics and social issues and things like that. So it's just like, well, it's like a, an intellectual version of Hooters. Um, yeah. You know, she's our topless bar or something. She's sitting naked, but she's talking about social issues. And then once a week she films herself masturbating. So if you compare that to uh, what you could see if you went and um, searched on Pornhub completely for free, it's it feels to me like not a very strongly, uh, not a very extremely sex-based experience. Yeah, it, se- it seems like it's the recognition and the kind of interactivity that's offered and the kind of personalized you know, they they are somebody to that OnlyFans star. They get, you know, they might even get their name called out or spoken to directly, and it's a lot more personalized. And, you know, you're going to find that it, with the democratization of kind of the online sex work, that that's going to become a lot cheaper and it, there'll be a lot more niche kind of services provided. And, you know, it's it's a completely different beast to pornography. Obviously, otherwise it just wouldn't be able to compete. Right. Well, porn is actors, um, Mm. whereas this is um, feels more like a real person who you are getting to know, because she's you know she's speaking her opinions to the camera every day, like a like a YouTuber. Um, Yeah, it's it's real or perceived intimacy. So you're you're getting insight into the person, the the performer's psyche. and you know, perhaps they, you might get a chance to express your own psyche, whereas you're just a voyeur at the other end of the screen right. uh, in pornography. Yes, I I don't remember whether Ayala. I think she does interact with the OnlyFans, so I mm. think you can message her, and she will message back and things like that. Yeah, um, I mean, we can all kind of relate to this. Uh, you know, at any intellectual debate or uh, show that you go to you always have the, the people in the audience who are just dying to get their opinions across and to be acknowledged for their intellect. You know, you in the Q&A, there's always someone who asks a question that isn't really a question. And people are just dying to be heard, to be acknowledged, to be seen. And I think that's kind of at the root of OnlyFans rather than pornography. I, I think that OnlyFans also, it's very different from normal uh, porn or sex work because you don't actually have to have sex with anyone else. So I think that it is, if you are young and beautiful, it's a very 
in some ways, it's a very easy way of earning a living if you're successful at it, which most mm. OnlyFans creators are not. So Ayala yeah. is an exception. Um, and there's a Pareto distribution, extreme Pareto distribution, like 2% of OnlyFans creators earn 98% of the money to be made mm. on OnlyFans. But nevertheless, if, uh, if you can be successful at it, as long as you are able to keep your identity confidential, as long mm. as the security is good enough, then there don't seem to be many downsides. Yeah, um, and I suppose they, um, they don't incur the same physical risks uh, as what we would understand as traditional sex workers. And I believe there's even somewhat of a schism within sex work as an umbrella term. Uh, you know, to differentiate between the online stuff and the people out putting themselves in danger, perhaps, on, on the streets. Right, right. I mean, you're only having sex with yourself. Right, yeah, and, and your viewers. I suppose it, it just, yeah, you have to just broaden your uh, umbrella of what you consider sexual interaction. Mm, mm. So what, do you, what is the relationship um, between the incelosphere and the, the um, manosphere? Or what is it called? Is it called the manosphere? The manosphere, yeah. The so the man it should be called yeah. the virilosphere or something like that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, the manosphere is such a broad church and, you know, it all gets spoken about together uh, as if it's just one. But, you know, there's parts of the manosphere that would kind of look down upon incels and... Uh, you know, it's, it, just like feminism is a kind of very broad church, so is the manosphere, and there's different niche aspects to it. Um, but yeah, so uh, incels from will get looked down on by perhaps uh, what are known as mugtow, M-G-T-O-W, men going their own way, which is kind of, they get annoyed if you compare them to incels because the difference as they would see it is that they could get sex and love and relationships, but that they don't think women are worth the trouble. They think women are worth more trouble than they're worth. So they're walking away and, uh, you know, foregoing any interactions with women where they can. And they kind of look down on incels a lot. Right. Um, and there are also all these weird pickup artist types, um, uh, uh, many of whom are very creepy. Right. So again, I, I mean, I think I think that the pickup artists, it, it, theoretically, in theory, there is no reason why that couldn't be a good solution to the incel problem. You, it, but you would want the intent to be good and for it not to veer towards the creepy, the leery, and the manipulation kind of stuff. But again, as we spoke about, Iona, it's a fine line between what's considered manipulation of a woman and what's considered just developing yourself and figuring out the tricks that work. So, for example, if, you, if you're an incel and you're, on, on the one hand, you're lambasted for your own natural inability, and then on the other hand, you're lambasted if you turn to pickup artists and try and game the system that that's wrong as well because it's manipulative. It kind of, it, it, it's almost like women and high status men want it to be left to, left to the naturals almost. And that seems somewhat cruel. Is there a possibility of an ethical pickup artistry? Uh, you know, is there anything 
wrong with that if, if you could do it. Mm. It just seems to be that the pickup artist arena veers towards the misogyny a little bit and the objectification of women uh, and seeing them as kind of notches in the bedpost rather than the real fulfilling relationships that many incels desire. And I think when you uh, drive a conversation underground like that, like the pickup artist or the uh, the incelosphere, it, it gets layered over with those misogynistic elements um, rather than, you, you know, for example, uh, those of us on the left wing should be able to have a more productive kind of conversation about this uh, and about, you know, helping disenfranchised men kind of ascend. But that's the, if, if I set up an ethical pickup artist group, you you just know it would be seen as misogynistic from the get go. Yeah, I think you'd have to give it another name, because yeah. at least in my mind, a pickup artist is somebody who approaches women pretending that he is in love with a woman and wants to have a serious relationship um, mm. in order to have a one-night stand and then ghost her. So right. um, it's mendacious. Mm. Um, and that, for me, is the main problem. There are also a few extreme examples. I think it was um, Stefan Molyneux, who, mm. whose advice was, who had some... Eggman. Had some really strange advice. I mean, some of his advice was basically abuse. Yeah. He said, one thing you can do is when the woman is in the car with you, um, if she won't have sex with you, get her into the car, lock all the doors, and then make her watch while you masturbate. Um, oh, my goodness. Does Harvey Weinstein listen to this guy? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> That's an example, though, of someone like that will pick up that the need for this kind of advice arena if you leave the vacuum. Mm. And something I have an idea on that I think, I don't know whether it would be positively received, but perhaps like female coaches who would kind of coach uh, disenfranchised younger men uh, from the female perspective. I mean, there's a, a kind of a, an online dating coach for women uh, coaching them on how to get the love that they want called Matthew Hussey. I don't know if you're aware of him. Is that his real name? That's his name, yeah. But he, it's it, his content. It's the most wholesome, sweet, and uh, you know, it, it gives pretty good advice as far as I can see. But you know, it, it, he's celebrated as fantastic, and it's brilliant to helping women understand men better. You know, and it's seen as wholesome, whereas the opposite is kind of seen as. And I suppose it, it's just the difference in what men and women want. Women want that uh, committed relationship. Whereas a lot of men are seen to want to just uh, pick up for the one night stand. However, I think a lot of men actually do crave the the intimacy of uh, a committed relationship. Oh, as well. definitely. There, yeah. I, I mean, there's no mind. There's no doubt in my mind at all. The only worry is how to be able to tell whether the person is sincere or not, and I think that's part of the fear around the pickup artistry um, that. That it's in making people better liars, making men yes. better liars. That is the I mean, fear. I mean, we can't legislate for men and women lying to each other. They no, lie to each other no. in different ways of all course. the time. You know. Yeah. Um, I think that. I mean, there is a bigger problem with a pickup artistry sort of scene. It's not a scene that I know anything about, but 
self-help scenes in general, self-help books and guides and YouTube channels and all those kinds of things mm-hmm. tend to be very, very low quality. I think only weight loss related stuff is more trashy on average than self-help stuff. Mm-hmm. And really there's this, the problem is that people are looking for easy answers mm-hmm. and people are are sad and desperate and um, it's very easy to exploit that and many people do. So Mm -hmm. I think that 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 is a larger problem um, with a pickup artistry and a lot of, probably a lot of the manosphere. Um, I mean, I'm very happy with things like kind of going into the woods, beating your chest and a kind of grunting around a fire and things like that, which used to be popular as a way of of celebrating your masculinity. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, when it comes to self help of any kind, which we could see this as roughly um, fitting into that category, it's caveat emptor. Um, I mean, it's kind of a there's a kind of a pyramid scheme aspect to it, like those people who tell you that they can help you to make a lot of money and mm. all you have to do is pay them 10 pounds or however yeah. much it is to get their access to their video and of course the way that they have made the money is in getting the people to give them money to tell them how to make money certainly and yeah. it seems that there's something similar going on here yeah i, I certainly think uh, you know, I mean, the the vast amounts of content that's out there in any arena is going to dilute the quality to some extent. But there's no reason, theoretically, that there couldn't be really good. There is still, like you said, some arenas in which there's really good self-help content. And there's no reason why uh, that couldn't apply for a, an ethical pickup artistry. But I think the, the block would come that society, both men and women, don't seem to want these low status incels to actually ascend. I mean, I do. And I say, oh, let's figure out what would actually help. But I think most want to kind of refuse to believe that even incels exist, that, that they're just a monster of their own making. And it's kind of like a an inner re- recognition of how superficial our sexual selection process is. That we kind of are hating the game by hating the most, the weakest players instead, mm. which, uh, you know, is, it, it's, it's an odd kind of observation to see. Well, we in general have this extraordinary cruelty towards people who have not done well, superficially not done well in the genetic lottery. Um, right, yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy that we have a kind of blind spot in our compassion there. Um, yeah. That either you're naturally blessed or fuck off. Yes, and you know the the kind of the notion, uh, the kind of the pain of sexual rejection is kind of downplayed by society, um, and you know despite you know studies have shown that physical pain and social pain like rejection, exclusion, and ostracism light up same the same regions of the brain, and you know it's the modern day progressives that will happily tell you that words are violence, but they would most likely scoff at the notion of sexual rejection as pain. And I think that this dismissiveness and blasé kind of dismissiveness is due to how acutely aimed at men sexual rejection is. You know, they have, men are the ones who have to do most of the advancement 
the reason that a lot of my female friends can kind of scoff at this pain is because they genuinely can't really relate to it on the same level. Many of them might never have been rejected right, at all. Because they've never asked anybody out. They've never had to. Right. So they, you know, they live in a kind of blissfully ignorant state of abundance that they can just reject uh, suitors left, right and center, knowing that there will be other ones coming. And it, 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 actually, the sexual advances get annoying for them because men, you know, will try. They have to. First of all, men, evolutionarily speaking, have to overestimate a woman's interest when they're making the approach, because it's too risky from an evolutionary point of view to miss the chance to approach a woman who actually is interested. So they overestimate what that smile means. And uh, along the way, when, uh, when they have to do all these approaches, there's going to be a lot of ick factor from the women as collateral damage, because you men will try trial and error to figure it out what will work. And it's different for uh, many women. So you know, that's not very comfortable for women either. I'm sure every woman has horror stories about the terrible approaches that they've had to endure from men. So I'd be encouraging of women to kind of be more uh, assertive in their own uh, romantic lives and kind of take a little bit of pressure off men, perhaps, and make some advances themselves. Mm. And certainly in terms of the behaviors that they reward, I, I always say that men are very simple creatures. We follow the female reward system. And I joke to my female friends that if they want a different behavior from men, they should just reward different things. And that kind of comes into play because there's a study recently done uh, by Joanna Pepin, who's doing research into what young people say they really want from their relationships. And she found that just 5% of young women uh, desired a relationship in which they worked full-time or part-time while the male partner didn't work at all. So, you know, we've done a fine job of celebrating bringing women into the workplace, but we haven't really done a great job of celebrating the stay-at-home dad Mm -hmm. that's not really rewarded. So men are going to maniacally strive for social status and success in the workplace. and you know, while the stay-at-home dad kind of thing isn't being rewarded, even though perhaps it should be in the modern world. Right. And I mean, it would certainly help women if we if we um, were able to value status less, because of course there aren't that many high-status men. So that's a lot of, that probably produces a lot of loneliness among women also. Exactly. And there's also a wide set of traits that men have that aren't being rewarded for. And I think Diana touched on this in her Uncanny Vulvas uh, article as well, that, um, you know, the the traits that we still reward sexually are kind of uh, traits from that were that were advantageous in our ancestral environment. So, you know, the kind of uh, she mentions the kind of Aspie type, Asperger's type qualities are not really seen as sexy, despite them, they might be really valuable in future and modern worlds. Um, so yeah, if we could kind of harness our evolutionary psychology and leverage it in a better way, that would be beneficial for everyone because things like the gender pay gap would also be um, mitigated against a lot if um, women were marrying stay-at-home dads more. I would. Um, I mean, I personally have always found that my relationships were more successful when I made the first move. 
Mm. Um, and I think that's because I have better taste than men do. So mm. I, yeah. I need to be able to proactively choose rather than just have a veto right. Because that's a really good point. Because I've actually I heard yesterday a study that shows that men are not even put off by borderline personality disorder <laughs> if a woman is hot enough. That's a real study I can link it to. You. <laughs> well, men just I, don't even see it if the woman is good looking enough. It's terrible. I think. Well, maybe even um, I know that some men think that if a woman is has psychiatric issues, she will be also wilder in bed. <laughs> right. Um, we convince ourselves of anything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do want to push back a little bit on the idea of um, <clears throat> the reject the the let's say the the asymmetry of rejections. Mm. Um, and I'm getting a little bit away from incels here, but um, so as I think you know, I um, used to be a dance teacher, and I spent. Uh, a dance teacher and a writer about dance, and I spent many years very heavily involved in the Argentine tango community. Mm. And um, to ask someone to dance um, in the tango community, we we ask each other to dance using eye contact and head signals. Right. It's a system called Mirada Cabeceo. I won't go into it in detail, but it's generally not the case that the man goes over and asks the woman verbally to dance. You have to mm. first catch each other's eye, and then there's little kind of subtle head signals that happen. Right. Um, and in most places around the world where tango is danced, um, there are more women than men who dance, often many more women than men who dance. Mm. And of course, women can dance with each other nowadays. This is the modern mm -hmm. era. And men can also dance with each other. And that does happen too. But mm -hmm. very often, um, there's a surplus of women. And many of the women are very unhappy because they're not being invited to dance through this, right. um, through this kind of eye contact, mutual eye contact signal. Um, in which both people are proactive. And um, yet the discourse in the tango community is all about um, how we can make the experience better for, me for those men who are getting a lot of rejections. Interesting, yeah. Um, I think that is partly a scarcity issue. If there are not enough yeah. men in tango, then we need to focus on how keeping to keeping yeah. the men in there <laughs> exactly keeping <laughs> those who are in there um but there is a a lot of uh focus on the hurt feelings of men who despite the fact that there are lots of women there who want to dance are not getting asked to dance so that's a very bitter kind of rejection um mm. you know there are imagine you were on the dating site where there were twice as many women as men yeah. And you still couldn't find any woman who wanted to swipe right. right on you. Um, but I think it's interesting. And the thing that I always argued is, um, even if it were the men asking the women, it's still rejection to not be asked. Yes. And I think that it's, um, I think it's actually worse to be rejected just sitting passively waiting. This mm. is why I, I recommend just 
asking people, just telling people you have a crush on them, just asking them out, just making the first move, making a fool of yourself. Mm. And the more often you do it, the more practice you get, the easier it gets. That's right. Um, I mean, the easier it gets to deal with um, each individual rejection. Obviously, if you are just constantly rejected, it begins to mount up a lot. I'm I'm not trying to belittle anybody's pain here, but um, you don't, you only make the shots that you aim for. That's right. Um, Yeah, which is probably why men overestimate women's interest a lot. They say, you know, our ancestors shot their shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, That metaphor always sounds really obscene to me. Uh, (laughs) Especially in that context, right? (laughs) Yes. So you talked about maybe we could um, end here. Um, Mm -hmm. You talked earlier about an ethical pickup artistry. So if if you were, um, if you had a YouTube channel or writing a book um, in which you were trying to help incels with better advice than the kind of advice that they currently get, mm. what sorts of things, if somebody listening to this isn't, feels they are an incel, mm. um, if some uh, young man is listening to this and he is very lonely and has very poor success with women, what would your advice be? So, uh, interestingly, there's already exists a, a book that I would recommend uh, in that it grounds kind of uh, attractiveness and uh, mating market interactions within evolutionary psychology. And it's, it's written by Diana's husband, actually. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Miller. He wrote a book called Mate with Tucker Max, who Tucker Max uh, kind of founded a, a literary genre called fratire, which was a satire of frat boy culture. And he essentially could have been similar to a pickup artist, kind of very um, alpha male type bro type guy. And it was his podcast and book with Jeffrey Miller was is really good. Um, and it kind of grounds it all in the evolutionary psychology. There's a, a podcast things, as well. What's the podcast? There's a podcast too. I don't know if it's still ongoing, but it's certainly there's enough backlog of episodes uh, to, to listen to and all very entertaining. And I think Diana was actually on one. It's also called Mate? Mate, yeah. The, the podcast is called The Mating Grounds. Great. So some, so some of the advice I would give off the top of my head to an incel is, first of all, if you feel you're part of any group that is fatalistically holding you back and wouldn't want to see you succeed, then you really have to question what that group is doing for your soul or what that identity is doing for your soul and whether there is any way out. Um, I always advocate that there is a way to ascend. Um, I think uh, the self-development route is certainly worth doing anyway. Uh, interestingly, I think you like this one, uh, Iona, perhaps get a dog. Because I saw a piece of research definitely. yesterday. Dogs yes. are definitely a chick magnet. Well, I am so empirically so. Yeah. I am so in love with Archie. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's certainly a, a babe magnet. <laughs> but there is actually real research to show that women are, I think, like thirty percent more likely to give their number to the same guy in a in a park when he has a dog with him than when he didn't. So I don't know whether that's a what that reveals. Um, I think for an incel, a lot can be done 
I can't overstate the fact of how important it is to just simply wait until you're a little bit older because there is a world of difference. Even in my personal experience, there is a lot more women interested in me at the age of 30 than there was at 20. Women tend to like older, more established, kind of higher status guys. Uh, they don't at, at the age of twenty. They don't. They tend to like older guys rather than the guys their same age. So, but surely by growing up, you will uh, broaden your net a lot. Grooming and style, like I said, is really important and really good if you can uh, build yourself up in terms of athleticism. Obviously, there are barriers to that for some uh, incels with disabilities. But uh, my last piece of advice would be also to uh, kind of hang around with more women if you can, kind of female wing women rather than wing men, uh, kind of help uh, with any approach. And also find your niche. So you mentioned dancing, Iona. And I think, you know, finding a niche or a, a kind of a, an arena that's yours is really important. So the cliche is that incels often complain about Stacey's, the, the stereotypical woman in a nightclub. And, you know, there's absolutely no point in me uh, uh, trying to pull a Stacey in a nightclub or a, a gym bunny who wants a real uh, hulked up kind of muscle bound monster. But if you put me in an intellectual arena or a debate or something like that, I might blow somebody's hair back, you know? So you really need to find your niche and focus there rather than, uh, you know, I think incels sometimes have a, a comically hyperbolic view of what dating is like. And it's perhaps because they don't get to really experience it in the same way. Um, so I think it can be a lot different than their, their trite stereotypes and to get out and experience different uh, kind of arenas, get offline, basically. I, I want to just add that, um, you should definitely consider learning a partner dance mm. because women love to dance and Absolutely. men yeah. who can dance are many women. If, if you can dance, you will instantly be much more attractive to women, no matter Absolutely. what you look like. Um, and you may think that you can't dance, but you really need to understand the difference between not being able to do something and not having learned because yes. If you go and try to dance right now, you may well not be able to dance or not be able to dance well. Um, but dancing is not something that you are just naturally gifted with. Um, yes, that I really agree. is a myth. You can learn. Some people may take longer than others to become uh, competent, uh, but mm. you can definitely learn. And, and if you're like, like what you said about the ratio, if there's a lot of women who are upset about not having partners to dance with, I think a lot of incels should go to tango. <laughs> absolutely. I, I highly recommend it. And you shouldn't discount the fact that, of course, not all of the women can dance amazingly. Yeah. So even if your dancing gets to a kind of middling level, a lot of women will want to dance with you and will enjoy dancing with you. And that Agreed. can very often, very often lead to relationships. So I would highly recommend, obviously, some people have physical disabilities that make this impossible. But if you are able-bodied, then I, I think that's a very good strategy. Great point. Yep, I agree. Is there anything that you have, uh, you feel that we haven't stressed enough 
um, or that I haven't really given you a chance to say that you would like to say? Um, no, I think we've covered the most points that uh, I want to make. If I could just end on one point that to kind of stress how much I think we owe ourselves as a society uh, a better conversation about this topic. Um, you know, I, it, it, we're, we're given a kind of trivialized caricature of incel conversation to digest. And, you know, it, it's a problem that will affect everybody, men, women, incels, feminists, men's rights activists. It affects everybody. We should all be concerned about this. Um, and it's very easy to kind of lampoon the idea of talking about incels. But uh, there are real world outcomes on the other end. And we need to change the perception that it's just about sex to the idea that it's about more than that. It's about relationships. And there's amazing research actually being done in the men's rights community about um, not just involuntarily celibate, but involuntarily father uh, um, without the opportunity to be a father, fatherless by ch or, um childless by uh, involuntarily childless i mean to say mm, um because mm. that's you know something we don't think of as a natural extent extension of the in in seldom you know it means that you some of the most rich relationships in our lives are around family and that's all denied so it's not just about sex it's about what what does sex kind of lead to so when we consider it like that maybe it's a little bit easier to have have some empathy and i think the reason why whether you think that the incelosphere is full of terrorists in waiting, or as I think, suicides in waiting, we owe ourselves a better conversation to kind of change that outcome. And when we drive a conversation underground and refuse to have a productive conversation about it, it gets hijacked by nefarious groups. And that's what we want to try and avoid. So I'm not happy as a person on the left wing to cede territory to anyone else to hijack that conversation. I'm happy to conversation have the conversation with people like yourself, Iona, and I think hopefully this has been productive, and let's keep talking. Absolutely. Thank you so much, William. Thank you, Iona. And have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for T. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for T PC, Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week. <laughs>